The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA show, EDU edition for this week. Um, Have a brand new topic area this week. This uh, discussion we're going to have today is based upon an email that Jim received from a listener seeking some, I don't know, I wouldn't probably term it advice since uh, we can't give specific advice uh, via the podcast format, but guidance, we'll call it, uh, about some decisions they have to make regarding their situation. And and uh, it's different enough from some of the situations we've talked about over the past several months that uh, Jim felt it be a good one for us to chat through and give some people who might be in similar circumstances some ideas for how they might want to think about funding their uh, retirement, given circumstances maybe similar to this listener. So that's where we're going to go. I'm going to bring Jim in uh, whenever he's ready to to chat. We have uh, we're not super tight on time, but we don't have an extra amount of time. I guess I will describe it uh, today. So so try to stay pithy and on topic. Don't so, yeah. run after squirrel up a tree. Don't get too don't get too crazy on the rabbit holes. Hmm. Few here or there is good. All right. I will be my typical pithy self. Okay, can't wait. Alrighty, folks, <laughs> this is December. It's December 5th as we record this. I think it hits the airwaves or podcast waves December uh, 6th. So I think this is the first one in, no, second one in December, right? We already had a December 1st one, I believe. Yeah, we recorded our the the first show, the uh, the, the previous Q&A show was the first we recorded during December. For yeah. December, yeah. Okay, so December, we like to try to do things a little fun, a little different. I'm not saying today's show is going to be ecstatically fun where, where everybody's going to listen to it five times and, and, and think it's a great little party, but it's different, and that's what I'm trying to do. I want to keep things in December a little bit different than what we normally do, and the reason I decided to, to finally answer this woman's question, she had emailed me a while ago, and it just didn't fit in uh, at the time. But the reason I like it is, Chris, and I did chat with you a little bit beforehand, Chris, which I normally don't, but the reason I did and I wanted to get Chris's opinion if he felt we should address it is it's really going to hit a, a key 
complaint that we get a lot on the show, and that is we don't talk enough about people who don't have several million dollars saved for retirement. This person, in our opinion, is sub one million. The exact amount that they have, I don't know for certain. Uh, we're going to go through and, and list what they told us their assets are and the questions that they're being faced with. And I did want to warn her when she first wrote to me, folks, she highlighted the uh, or the subject was, I desperately need advice fast, please help, or something like that. And that's not what we do on this show. We don't have a financial planning agreement in place or an investment advisory agreement in place with any of the listeners on the show when we answer their questions. And we're trying to give more generalized advice, not necessarily specific advice. Now, I'll add a caveat to that. If somebody writes to us and wants to know the specific rules on distributing an IRA inherited by a non-spouse beneficiary post-secure, we can give specific advice there because we're just regurgitating what the rules are. But when it comes to financial planning, I've often said financial planning is part art, part science. The science part, like I just alluded to, the rules regarding IRA distributions. That's kind of a science part. But the art part is the nebulous part. Uh, repeating myself with the word part all the time, I apologize. But it's more nebulous. It's hard to pinpoint. You could get 10 advisors in a room and get 10 different answers, and all of them are correct. So when it comes to the art part, of financial planning, it's hard to give a specific answer to someone who did sign an investment, excuse me, a financial planning agreement with us, let alone somebody over a podcast where we're trying to talk in generalizations. The reason I'm explaining this, folks, is at the beginning of her email, she addresses the fact that I reached out to her with a very long email telling her exactly what I just shared with you. Even if I have the time to answer this question on the podcast, I am not giving you specific advice, and you need specific advice. And I strongly encouraged her not to wait for an answer on a podcast, but to hire a planner and start crunching the numbers that she was asking us to answer. The reason I want to address it now, though, is it's a good case study, folks, for sub $1 million people who are entering retirement. And as you'll see forcibly in her situation, and I'll explain, and how can they perhaps navigate the huge uncertainties that retirement brings? And don't think, people, that just because somebody might have two or three million, their retirement is no problem. They often have very similar issues that they have to deal with. Anything you want to add to that little bit of an intro? No, I think that's a good overall disclaimer, if you will, about the, about the situation we're going to go over today. Okay. So she first wrote to me in late September, I believe it was, folks, early October, somewhere around there. And I did reply back to her and kind of put her email in the EDU section and thought I would answer it. And as luck would have it, she just reached out to me recently and she begins, Hi, Jim. I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving, but I have never had elk stew, although I'm assuming it is tasteful. 
but we will stick with turkey in our household. <laughs> so I don't blame you. Elk stew is a little bit difficult because you have to go out and harvest an 800-pound beast in the middle of the Rocky Mountains somewhere. But um, the elk stew was tasteful, at least in my opinion it was, but so was my turkey. I want you to know that I value your and Chris's opinion on your show. I will take your advice, and I will hire and consult with an advisor. But I want you to know that your opinion matters to me, and I'm looking forward to perhaps hearing my case on your show. You can answer the questions generally and give general answers. You don't have to answer all of them or be specific. Just one or two would be great. So I thought, okay, let's feature this, Chris, because it is a sub $1 million portfolio of of savings. And what can they do to perhaps navigate some of the curveballs that life is throwing their way? So it begins her original email now, folks, uh, coming in. So it begins, Jim and Chris, I recently found your informative podcast and I listen to it regularly. I live in the beautiful state of, where does she live, Chris? Colorado. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so I'm throwing it off to you there. Yeah, I know. She's a fellow Coloradoan, folks. She doesn't say where in Colorado she lives, but she's a fellow Coloradoan. I am looking into retiring June of 2024, so about six months from now, technically seven months from now, folks. When I turn 62, I have been forced into an early retirement because of my mother's dementia. I am a healthcare worker, and I will have a small pension. So let's pause there, Chris, and talk a little bit about this. I often share, and that's what I hope to do, folks. I should have put this in my preamble. I want to kind of take her situation, maybe address some of her thoughts in a very general manner, but I really want to apply it to the population as a whole who's listening to this. I hope if you do have two, three, four, five, six, seven million saved for retirement, you're not going to ignore this podcast because some of these issues will apply to you as well. And the first thing that I often have said on the show repeatedly is that we, it's easy to say it's always going to happen to someone else. Someone else is going to suffer this calamity, not me. I call it the other guy syndrome. And we hear about it all the time. Well, it's not going to happen to me. It's going to happen to someone else. So I don't need to save money for this, that, or the other thing. Here's a case where the other guy happened to this listener. And what happened? She's being forced into an early retirement to take care of her mom who has dementia. Now, she doesn't share anything about her mom. And I'm guessing her mom does not have enough assets to go into a uh, memory care facility. And they probably are being resistant on wanting to go on to Medicaid, perhaps. But also, she is a healthcare worker. And she probably has the ability and the knowledge and the experience and the love to care for her own mom. And she can't have her cake and eat it too. She can't go to work and care for her mom. So she has to make a decision. 
And going to care for her mom is going to cost $100,000 a year of income to them because that's what her salary is. Oftentimes we hear that people's long-term care plan is what, Chris? Oh, I have children Mm -hmm. and they'll what? My family will take care of me. My family will take care of me. But they aren't factoring in the impact that that has on the family. Just because you have a daughter, and I'm not saying that's what this mom did. I'm talking that we hear, I've been doing this 24, almost 20, I don't know if it's 24, 25 years now. But in about a quarter of a century of helping people retire, I can't even, if I got a quarter for every time someone said, I have kids, they'll take care of me, or my family's going to take care of me, I I could probably go out and and, and buy a, a pretty nice dinner at a fairly expensive restaurant. Because we hear it all the time. But I share with people, that's an impact to the person who needs to care for you. Especially when we have people who have children in the healthcare sector. Oh, my son's a nurse, or my daughter is a nurse, or a doctor. They'll take care of me. Really? They have family and a life as well. Now, I admire this woman retiring early, but she admits she's kind of forced into it to take care of her mom. Anything you want to add beyond her situation, but tidbits you want to share with our listeners on that? Well, I, you know, I... I hear a lot of people also say they intentionally don't want to be a burden on their own kids. Maybe they felt responsible and had to contribute a lot of either time, energy, or money to caring for their own parents, and they want to make sure that doesn't happen to their own kids. So I do hear the flip side of that as well, but I think people too casually assume that they're going to get assistance from family, and it's knowing that their family loves them, and you would, you know, they would do the same for. For, for them, you know, um, if something happened to them, you proved it by raising maybe, you know, the children when they needed help from you as the parent. But, um, you know, timing isn't always on, in your favor. Timing can be bad, and maybe it's a per- terrible time in their career for them to take off time, and it really derails their own situation. So I would be really careful um, it's almost like, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket kind of a situation where you're relying completely on one individual person or maybe two people. Or I guess if you have a bunch of kids, there's got some diversification there. But, but uh, you know, if, unless there's a clear understanding that someone in the family has the time to devote to that kind of care, I would almost dismiss that as a plan. I think it would be better to look to other alternatives, even if it happens to be relying on, you know, the system, you know, Medicaid itself. Um, And then if, you know, that's the plan that you're comfortable with, because that's all your finances can support, then if family can help out, that just makes things better. But if they can't, then you have, you know, settled and come, you know, gotten okay in your mind with the fact that you might actually end up in a Medicaid situation. Um, But just kind of flippantly deciding family is going to be the solution is, is precarious. And we are not implying that that's what this person's mother did. I'm talking in general. No, no, in general. I just want to keep making sure every listener knows that, including the one who sent the email in. There could be any number of reasons why the mom needs the care from the daughter and can't pay for the care on her own, least of which being 
memory care is outrageously expensive. But here, folks, with one person, we have two other guys. Because it's always someone else is going to get dementia, not you, right? It's not going to be you. Someone else is going to get dementia or Alzheimer's. Like Glenn Campbell. Yeah, it'll be someone else. It won't be me. It'll be Glenn Campbell. And it's always going to be someone else who's going to have to leave their job early to take care of a loved one. It won't be me. Again, I keep pointing out, and I will not just here, but incessantly until I stop doing this podcast way into the future, hopefully, to always assume it's going to be someone else, I think, is a, a very sure way of setting yourself up for failure in retirement. Because if something could happen, it very well may happen to you. Okay, so we continue. Oh, and one other thing I want to point out to this listener and to all of us in general. She's going to be giving up $100,000 a year of salary to take care of her mom. I don't know how long her mom lives. I hope her mom can still live and, and, and uh, stay in the house for as long as possible. There may come a time where the mom may have to go into a facility uh, because take one person taking care of someone with dementia 24-7, that is a nightmare waiting to happen. And eventually the mom may go into a facility and may have to go on Medicaid. I don't know. I don't know their personal situation. Where am I getting at with this? Yes, she's going to be giving up quite a bit of salary, but nothing stops people from going back to work later, especially in a career, healthcare, where there's probably a very strong demand for her services and she could go back to work. So I often look at a forced retirement as a sabbatical. You're just taking some time off to address something else. There's no... Rules saying you can't go back to work, that this is it. There's no turning around. I've got to give up this job and that's it. No, you're taking a sabbatical. You're taking some time off. It's not a paid sabbatical, but you're going to take some time off and you're going to care for a loved one. So do keep that in mind. I just wanted to kind of put that out there and share that. Okay. So here she starts sharing a little bit about their situation. Let's go through the assets, Chris. So I'm just going to read the assets so everybody understand what she has and how we arrived at the fact that we feel she has sub $1 million. Okay, so she begins. Um, we have an IRA with 145000 We have a tax-sheltered annuity with 300000 we have 50,000 in CDs. We have, oh, she has the potential, folks, this is part of her question, to take a $300,000 lump sum pension or a physical pension of 1,800 a month, no cost of living increase, that will pay her for the rest of her life. And if she dies before her husband, he gets half. And then they have a million-dollar home, but 350000 of debt on it. The husband makes $145,000 a year. She makes 100000 like I said, but she will be quitting in six months. So what does that all add up to, Chris? 
Well, before the home is thrown in there, we've got 790 essentially. Okay. And then they do have about another $750,000 of equity in the home. But before you turn around and say, oh, so they got one and a half million, Jim, they don't have a, a sub one million. Well, they kind of do. Because the equity in the home, 750, remember they owe 350 on a million dollar home, so they can walk away. Well, actually, no, 650. 650. Mm-hmm. I was going to say my math work is wrong, uh, wrong there. They've got 650,000. They still need to live somewhere. Right. That 650 has to go to housing. And then it's very limited on what they can access from that. In my opinion, that 650, they might be able to access 300, 325,000 of it through a reverse mortgage. And that's assuming they can get the primary 350,000 paid off first. So I still. Or through downsizing or something, but without a significant uh, effort. Uh, regarding the home, that is uh, that equity is sticky and it's not readily available for retirement. Let's chat coverage. a little bit about that then downsizing because we hear that all the time, folks. Mm-hmm. I'll downsize. I'm going to downsize. I've got a million dollar home. I'm going to downsize. Chris and I just happen mm-hmm. to live in Colorado, so we know a little bit more about the housing market here. But let's look at their situation. Million dollar home, three hundred fifty thousand of debt still owed on it, six hundred fifty thousand net. Let's not look at seller's commission or, or sales taxes or anything like that. They have about six hundred and fifty thousand if they sold the house tomorrow that they could walk away with. But it, they get to live somewhere. They could either put that six hundred and fifty off to the side and generate some return on it and just keep withdrawing from it to pay rent, which we would not recommend at mm-hmm. all. So instead, they got to take that 650 and buy something with it. Mm-hmm. In the state of Colorado, most starter homes, just to get in the door, and that's living in a house upon a house upon a house in those beige-colored or gray-colored subdivisions where everything looks the same and you can stick your hand out the window and knock on the neighbor's window and ask for a cup of sugar, that's still going to cost you four hundred and seventy to $550,000 just to get into one of those. So could someone who's living in a million-dollar home, which in Colorado doesn't buy much, but it buys a nice place, be willing to move to one of those starter-type neighborhoods? I don't know. Would they be happy there? And even then, they might walk away with 100000 or less of equity. Right. So, so it's down- not a game-changer for them. No. Downsizing in a state where the cost of housing has increased rapidly is difficult to do because you still have to go somewhere and live. And if you're used to living in a certain style neighborhood or a certain part of town next to a certain highway exit or shopping center, to get a true downsize, you might have to move further away from your center or further away from the town you even wanted to stay in. So downsizing is difficult to do. Now, you can do a reverse mortgage. They could say, hey, I can walk away with six fifty. I don't want to live in a million-dollar home anymore, 
but I wouldn't mind living in a $800,000 home. Still not going to make a big difference for them in Colorado, but let's lower it to $700,000. Still not going to make a huge difference, but follow what I'm getting at, folks. One of the things y'all can do when you figure out downsizing. If you're going to buy a $700,000 home, they have $650,000 net. They're still going to be fifty grand short. They could take it from savings and again, essentially live in a paid off home, but they've got no other wealth. But they do have wealth inside their home, if you will, a net worth in their home. They will still have that. But another thing you could do if they wanted to go this route, they can say, hey, I'm going to buy a $700,000 home, but I'm only going to put three fifty dollars down. So from the six fifty, they can take three fifty, put it down onto the home, and then they use a reverse mortgage to cover the other half. It's, I forget the technical name of it. I call it the reverse mortgage to own strategy. But remember, the federal government, through housing and urban development, took over the reverse mortgage market after the 08 debacle in real estate, and they came in and kind of saved the industry, if you will, and HUD backs most reverse mortgages now. There are, there are certain reverse mortgages that are too big in HUD's eyes, and you have to go to the private market, uh, and then they, HUD won't necessarily back those. But if they're within a certain limit, and this would be in my example— HUD will back those mortgages, and it kept the industry alive. But HUD, the federal government, Housing and Development, cleaned up the reverse mortgage market a lot and made a lot more disclosures. People understand what they're doing, what they're getting into. But they specifically created this strategy to allow someone to buy a home with less money down than they would need. It's not a good example, folks, in their case, because you're astute. You're probably sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, Jim. So they're going to walk away with six fifty. You have them to buy a $700,000 home. They could take their six fifty and another 50000 of savings, own the $700,000 home outright, and they have $700,000 of net worth. Or they can do your strategy, but now they're going to be carrying debt on the home. And when you subtract that debt out, they're kind of in the same spot. Yes, in this particular case, it would be. But look at a case that might be a little bit different. Well, no, no, no. It works in this case because while the net worth is the same, the difference is with the less money of your own into the house using the reverse mortgage, you've got more liquid assets out to actually spend on other expenses. True. I was only fixating on net worth, but you are right. They would have more liquid assets. Right. Although someone would also say, and here's where I would go with this, and it kind of all equals out, if they didn't do the reverse mortgage to own strategy, which again, folks, is simple. You have to put half the value of the home down a reverse mortgage covers the other half. There are limits based on the um, county that you live in. It goes right down to the state and the county. So you got to talk to a reverse mortgage broker. 
Everything will be disclosed to you clearly, much more clearly than it ever was. HUD requires you to go to a separate course and take a course where you're going to be taught reverse mortgages. So they're really trying to clean it up. But they did design this to allow people with not a lot of equity to be able to, or assets rather, to be able to afford a home that they might otherwise not be able to afford. Okay, back to what Chris and I were chatting about here, though, in this situation. Even if they put all the money down, though, Chris, and owned the house outright, they could still take a reverse mortgage line of credit for $350,000. And they could simply borrow from that three fifty dollars as they needed it. Either way, from a net worth standpoint, it's almost equal. And I would argue from a liquidity standpoint, it's nearly equal, whether they did it or not. Because the reverse mortgage line of credit works just like having money in a bank. A lot of times they give you checks, literally, folks. And you can go and write checks, or it's now wired directly into your checking account from your reverse mortgage line of credit. So it would still also be liquid and be there. To me, where this really would shine in would be in a case where somebody is selling a home and maybe in another state, not necessarily Colorado, and they don't have enough money to buy the type of home in a neighborhood that they want to live in. They're going to, want to, they're going to walk away with just a few hundred thousand dollars of, of net worth. Let's say this couple walked away with just 300000 they could still buy a $600,000 home by putting $300,000 down and doing a reverse mortgage for $300,000. So the strategy can work a lot and help people a lot where you don't have much net worth in your home and you might be sitting there thinking, I'm only going to be able to walk away with 200000 300000 after my debt and all homes in this state now are are too expensive. I'm going to need twice that amount to be able to buy a home. This is where the strategy may work for you. may not work perfectly for this couple, but for this strategy, it could work. I don't want to turn this into a reverse mortgage discussion, but don't overlook the brilliance of reverse mortgages. We don't love them. We don't hate them. They're just a tool that could be used. And I've often said on this podcast, when I move to Ohio, I am leaning towards using the reverse mortgage to own strategy to buy my Ohio home um, for a variety of reasons. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. So here's the bind she's in, Chris. They don't have a lot. They're being forcefully retired. And now she's trying to figure out what should I do with this pension? She goes on to share with us, folks, that her and her husband crunched the numbers and they feel they will need $100,000 a year to cover minimum dignity floor and fun. I'm guessing since they live in Colorado, their MDF is probably around $50,000, $60,000 a year, maybe a little bit more. The rest is going to be fun. I think fifty is too low in Colorado. Probably sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year of MDF, and everything beyond that is going to go to fun. 
I think during the time that the mom is living with them, I'm guessing the mom has social security or some type of pension benefit or some type of income. They're going to be able to use that income most likely to help support the mom, buy her food, medical care, things of that nature. So I think during the period of time while she's caring for her mom, the cash flow will be there and they might not quite need the full $100,000. If she's going to be the full-time caregiver to a patient with dementia, I don't see them going on a two, three-week vacation somewhere. I just don't think they're going to have much go-go, at least initially, because the retirement is being forced upon health care needs of her mom. So with that happening in the background, I think initially upon the forced retirement, the husband is still making $140,000 a year. I don't think they're going to be fully spending $100,000 a year because a chunk of that is fun and having to care full time for the mom. I don't think they'll be spending everything on fun. And the mom, I'm guessing, has some type of income that's coming in that will allow the family to provide for her food and clothing and needs like that and probably go a bit towards taking care of some of the house's uh, set expenses, the utilities and things like that. So I think initially they might be in a good position. What do you think, Chris? Well, we're doing a lot of guessing here because we don't really have their whole you know situation broken down the way we would normally analyze it. I think some of the assumptions you're making are, you know, is, are, are seem reasonable given the circumstances and given what uh, uh, this person has shared with us so far. So I think it's not not atypical at all for someone to have an all-in budget right now uh, in the state of Colorado of about $100,000 with a reasonable amount of desired expenses being covered um, as well. So it's, I think that's all reasonable so far. Okay. So, with that bit of a background, her first main question, what should she do? Should she take $300,000 lump sum pension payout and forego $1,800 a month for the rest of her life at 62, no matter how long she lives, but with no COLA adjustment, and if she were to die early, and I hope she doesn't, but if she did, the husband would get $900 a month. So that's her first main question. What do you guys think? Should I get the pension? Or, well, she says, she's got two main questions. Should I get the pension in an annuity or a lump sum and roll it over to an IRA? There's a lot of moving parts there. And we need a deep analysis. But Chris, one of the reasons I mentioned this to you first Mm -hmm. is we need to analyze that pension payout and see if it's reasonable. Historically, or predominantly, pensions pay significantly more than a private annuity because pensions are based on a multiple of your earnings throughout your career, whereas an annuity payment is based on current interest rates and the age that you claim the annuity payments. But interestingly, in this case, we found, or at least we feel, the pension is still not bad, 
but not as great compared to a private annuity as we thought, Chris. Well, it's maybe, um, it doesn't overachieve, I guess one might say. It's when we, given you know the basic information we know about them in the state of Colorado, it looked like that $300,000 lump sum in the private insurance market would uh, generate about the same type of income situation. Uh, a flat, no cost of living adjusted somewhere between $1,700 and $1,800 a month with a 50% survivor for the spouse kind of a situation. So I think the pension is okay. And, and what we're doing here is initially looking at it at just face value, not so much how does this pension versus lump sum fit into the overall situation, which is really what she needs to look at. But rather, sometimes we can either uh, be uh, come really attracted or dismiss a pension option because it's either really good compared to what you could get elsewhere. So that kind of leans us towards preferring, you know, the the pension rather than the lump sum. Um, and other times it's uh, worse than what you can get in the private markets. And so the conclusion is, why would you ever uh, annuitize within the pension? Uh, because you could do better in the private sector. We don't really have that here. It's kind of a wash at this point. So now um, we, we would generally look at it in the broader scope of how does this fit in the overall plan? What makes sense? What what risks are in in existence that one of these things could solve? You know, the, the lump sum, um, does that do more positive for the plan or does the lifetime income do more for the positive of the plan? Okay, good way of putting it. Mm-hmm. All right, so folks, let's... You were a little quicker on that and I had oh. my email closed. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Well, wait a minute. You didn't go as deep as I thought you were going to. I knew you were too fast on this. I was like, damn, I thought I had time to order my... St- I was ordering a Starbucks for my oh, editor to go I pick see. it up. And you interrupted my whole Starbucks order. I'm going to have to start from the start again. I wanted you to go through the payments that you got from the private annuity. I did. You did? I need yeah. to pay attention when you're chatting yeah, away. Was, there were a variety right in the seventeen to $1,800 range, right where the pension sits. The slightly lower, the pension um, looks to be slightly better than the private market is currently on the day I pulled the quotes. There's some variations uh, as you know, interest rates and things fluctuate, but... Um, the point is kind of what you alluded to when you handed it off to me that the pension wasn't anything spectacular, but it was respectable. It was, you know, competitive with what you could get elsewhere. So there, it doesn't, it makes the decision harder because it doesn't give us an obvious choice that, that it is either terrible and we wouldn't want to do that, or it's great. So we definitely want to do it. It's, it's pretty neutral. Perfect. I didn't realize that. So let's start looking at this the way we normally would. Why don't you add, because what we have here, folks, she doesn't break out her minimum daily for from her her fund spending. So we're just guessing, being in Colorado, that sixty to 70000 a year of the $100,000 is MDF, or food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care expense, and the rest is fun. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't break that out. But let's stick with that as our measure. Mm-hmm. Let's say... Look, cut the difference. Yeah, sixty-five thousand. Yeah, is minimum dignity floor. The rest is fun. We believe passionately in covering your minimum dignity floor with lifetime guaranteed secure income. 
She shared with us in the email, folks, her husband will work to 65, he's 63 now, 65, maybe 67, he's not sure. His Social Security at 65 will be 3000 a month. Her Social Security at 62, remember, she's being forcefully retired. I don't say someone's holding a gun to her head, but she's forcefully retired in the sense at 62, she's going to be caring for her mom in six more months when she retires. She is eligible for an $1,800 a month pension at that point in time, or as luck would have it, $1,800 of Social Security at 62. So first, Chris, do they need more lifetime secure income? Before we can answer her other questions, should she take the lump sum or the pension? Let's look at the need. Mm-hmm. Walk people through that because clearly there is a need. Yeah, so based on the claiming ages that they're discussing or contemplating, yes, there appears to be an obvious need because... Um, if she claims at 62, getting $1,800 a month, and he does retire at the early age of 65 and starts claiming immediately, that's another 3000 a month. That's $4,800 a month times 12 gets him $5,700. So they're about uh, $7,400 a year short of their minimum dignity floor, and uh, which is... Not surprising in my book, because when people claim early like this, 62, 65, what we often see when they don't claim early doesn't happen. What we often see when they do claim early is that at least initially and for some period of time thereafter, once all the Social Security is turned on, their minimum dignity floor is covered by simple Social Security when they both have Social Security benefits like this. And so they may not have an obvious immediate need for additional secure income if they're going to take our approach and cover the minimum dignity floor with secure income. But if you're going to pull the trigger at 62 and 65, you are reducing your uh, Social Security benefits. She's taking a 30% haircut in her benefit compared to her full retirement age of 67. He's, on the other hand, taking uh, about a... uh, what uh, at sixty five versus sixty seven is going to be twenty five equals time twenty four about a seventeen percent haircut on his um, by taking it at sixty five versus sixty seven and that's showing up in this shortfall that immediately happens after all their social security is even turned on not being able to cover what we suppose to be their minimum dignity floor expenses so. The In cases like this, what we first look to, because right now, delaying taking your Social Security is actually quite a good deal because Social Security is far more valuable the larger it is than a lot of people really perceive because Social Security is one of the last readily available secure income sources with a full CPI-based inflation adjustment to it. That causes it to do quite a good job for a lot of people in covering things like the minimum dignity floor um, down the road. So the first thing we would contemplate is, would it make sense to not turn it on quite so early? It's not like they have no other resources. They have 
about $500,000 of liquid assets, maybe a little more if they downsize the house, but we'll leave that off to the side for now. They have some money where they could make up a bit of the difference. Now, they don't have a lot, though. That's the challenge. But maybe this is where the pension starts to become more valuable as a lump sum. Does it? And I'm, I'm, at, I'm posing this as questions because we'd have to really crunch the numbers. And I would encourage this, this listener, someone needs to crunch these numbers and see what, you know, what seems to be uh, the best approach um, or at least the one more attractive to you. There's probably not going to be an absolutely obvious approach that A is definitely better than B, but someone should be able to spell out to you, here's the pros and cons of doing it this way, and here's the pros and cons of doing it that way, and you can weigh which one deals with the risks that you're most concerned about the best. But um, maybe here's an argument. Uh, The pension is attractive in that it is a secure income source, but there's no cost of living adjustment to it. It's not as valuable as the an equivalent amount of Social Security because Social Security is going to go up with inflation. This pension is going to be flat. So maybe that swings the pendulum towards some attraction to the lump sum, which would give her and her, her, and her husband the ability to delay taking Social Security a little bit to get that larger amount to get them you know, a, a more robust foundation to the retirement where they're relying more on inflation-adjusted secure income sources, Social Security, to cover minimum dignity floor in the long term. Because one of the keys to being able to spend early comfortably and knowing what you really need in the early days is becoming confident that your later days are taken care of. And one of the best ways to do that is to make sure you've got nice, solid, secure income sources down the road and don't overlook Social Security and its value. It's inflation adjusted. This pension they're talking about and a basic income annuity is not. Now you can buy inflation adjustment in an income annuity, but it's not CPI based. It's going to be a number you pick and commit to, and that's it. Social security is still CPI inflation based, which I keep saying it because people really underestimate the value of that, particularly if you're worried about inflation. Was that my cue? That's you. All right. A couple of things that I want to comment on here as well. Uh, first, for those curious, my coffee order did go through. So thank you, Chris, for taking a little bit of time. I, I did my best. I did. Uh, my Vente Apple Chris Oakmail Macchiato Decaf Express Roast Extra Hot Three Shot Light Drizzle with Cinnamon Powder is on its way. Can you repeat that? You're my nightmare. <laughs> You know what I hate is the people in Starbucks who wait in line all the time, and then when they get there, they don't know what they want, or, or they, they start to try to place the order. It just drives me nuts. Order it ahead of time in the app, folks. It's a lot easier. Do you think I could walk into a Starbucks and repeat what I just read from my app? No. I'm surprised they even read that without screwing up. <laughs> so when I go into a Starbucks, I just hand up my phone and say, I want one of those, and then they'll just read it. Okay. <laughs> Back to the task at hand. Here's what I'm thinking. Her pension and her um, lump sum is a wash because she could take 350 and get the same amount for all intent and purposes. I don't see an advantage to the pension yet. Now, listener who wrote this email, I am not saying to take the lump sum. I'm saying, hear me out and talk to whatever advisor you hired. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm still clinging to the notion 
If they're spending $100,000 a year and 35000 of that is fun, and that's our assumption, not hers, but we're basing it off of here in Colorado, I don't think they're going to be spending $100,000 a year as she's taking care of her mom. The husband is bringing in 140. Now, granted, taxes need to come from that. I agree. But their salary is going to go from 240 to 140. Their tax hit is going to be dropping. I still think he's going to net take home close to what they're going to need. But I also feel the mom is going to have some assets coming over and or income. So where am I going with this? You need to find out, listener, because I agree with Chris. Social Security is more valuable. But do you need Social Security yet? I'm going by your numbers. You don't tell me what your mom is bringing to the picture, only that you have to take care of her. I assume she's not destitute. She's got some type of secure income, a pension, a survivorship on Social Security. You had a dad in the past. There's got to be some money coming in from your mom. If your $100,000 is accurate and your husband's bringing in $140,000, i am thinking, Chris, she might be able to even delay the Social Security. And here's where I'm thinking the lump sum. On the pension, you need to find out if this isn't a sabbatical, if you are done with work, you're not going to go back. Delaying your pension, does your benefit continue to increase or not? Uh If you took the 350,000 lump sum, I know you can turn it into a guaranteed annuity payment while interest rates are where they are now. Massive drop, unexpected massive drop in interest rates would hurt what I'm about to describe. It won't hurt your pension. It'll impact your your lump sum. If anything, you'll get a greater lump sum if interest rates are lower in the future because of the way pension payouts work and the math behind it. So you are taking some interest rate risk. I'll concede that. But... All things being equal and no massive moves in interest rates over the next two, three years, I'm thinking this, Chris, is the pension benefit going to increase much? I don't know. She needs to find out from HR. True. Because you can move that 350 and right now buy a three-year market that's going to guarantee you a 6% return for three years. You could grow that lump sum 6% a year with no risk, granted risk of the insurance company going under, and 350 is greater than the, the guarantee account in the state of Colorado by $100,000. So I don't want to say there's no risk. The insurance company could go under, so make sure you feel comfortable with the insurance company. You might not quite get 6%, then you might get 5859 five, with an A-plus rated insurance company. But my thoughts are this, Chris. I don't think they need to turn either one on. The more I ponder this as I was ordering my macchiato, I'm thinking the numbers just don't make sense here. I don't think they need to turn them on. I think they're probably falling victim to, and by the way, it's 300,000 for the pension, not 350. 
The three fifty was the house. Oh, but just so not. I was on a roll. I was on. You know what I meant. No, what I, knew, it's what I, I mean, not what I yeah. say. But uh, she's facing giving up this well-paying job, and that is freaking, freaking her, her out. out, right? So it's grasping for income to replace it, grasping for income, your pension, turn on the social security right away, etc. Someone needs to take a more rational look at this and step back and look at the whole picture and put the puzzle pieces together and the puzzle might come together where it makes perfect sense not to generate immediate income, particularly if the husband's willing to work for, for a while. He's already willing to work for another couple of years. So he that might go as long as 67. Time. That's yeah. four more years. That, that actually would is, you know, in a lot of cases I've seen with these amount of overall resources, that is a very positively impactful decision. If he doesn't hate his job and or you know physically can't do it anymore or something like that that obviously becomes a struggle hard to overcome but but that is one dial that if it were turned you know i, I always envision retirement planning is all these different dials that you're adjusting to make everything uh, work out okay so one of the dials you can turn is retirement age and when you have limited resources and a nice healthy paycheck coming in like he has that you know, buys them a lot of time to then have much, you know, fewer years to fund before all this much larger secure income turns on because his secure income is going to be much larger if he turns it on at 67 or 70. You know, they didn't even think about that. I'm probably shocking them by having him think about potentially delaying his to 70. But um, somebody's got to look at all those moving parts, all those dials and see what makes sense. Um, Absolutely. And, and have them crunch this notion that I'm getting at, because if your pension benefit, I know when I was a cop, if we weren't, if we left our pension after age 65, it barely, it didn't increase. It was, it was done. We got nothing. And again, we had mandatory retirement as well. And why would you want to delay it? But I don't know what your pension's going to do post your retirement. But I do know the longer you wait before turning an annuity on, the more we already know you're going to get the same. The 300,000 lump sum is equal to what you can get in an annuity now. So it's a wash. But three years from now, you'll be three years older. So that's going to give you more of a payment. Or four years from now, I'm just clinging to three years. I don't know why. But three years from now, you're going to be older and your lump sum, I wouldn't take it and invest it. I don't think you need to take it and spend it. I think there's going to be enough income from your mom and your husband to keep the family going if your $100,000 of MDF and fun hold true. Because I also don't think you're going to be spending quite as much on fun caring for your mom. And then if your mom sadly were to pass away two months after you quit, you can then go back to work. And this whole podcast was for naught. But it gave us something to talk about and teach people of different ways to look at this pension payout. And to, yes, you're being forced, but you're going to be taking care of your mom. You got to look at her income, her assets, and the availability of those. So I would love, you have a tight situation, listener. Even if you didn't have to retire early to care for your mom, you and your husband were looking to work just a few more years. You have a tight situation. You need as much lifetime guaranteed income as possible. 
And the single best thing you can do is delay Social Security. Your husband should try to get his to 70. You said he's willing to go to 67, working, and I would assume delaying Social Security. That's most likely his full retirement age. I'm not saying now he has to go work for three more years to 70, but there might be strategies in the future where he might be able to delay to 70. A lot's going to depend on how long your mom lives, how much asset she's bringing over or income she's bringing over into the family, um, how much you're going to be spending taking care of her, all these variables. But I would strive to turn on nothing to try to live off of your husband's salary and whatever your mom's bringing to the picture. And you can delay your Social Security a little bit more. But I'm hesitant to tell you to take any type of an income payment now from the annuity. And I'm leaning more towards a lump sum. And that's very rare. So rare for me to say. Because you all know I love lifetime secure income and pensions and Social Security and even income annuities. I think it's going to depend a lot on the... uh size of the income increases if they occur exactly. from her to waiting That's to turn on the pension because there can be a significant, significant difference absolutely. in the amount you get even if you retire at 62 turning it on immediately versus turning it on at 65 many pensions have substantially higher payout there and even let you delay it beyond that with every year granting you much higher payouts so this is all the de- these are the the murky details that need You've to be cleaned to up look at. to look at. Yeah, and I would be cautious because Chris is one hundred percent right, and that's what you need to get a hold of HR, like I said, and find out if I delay this, how much am I going to get at sixty three, sixty four, sixty five, sixty six, sixty seven. You need to be looking at those numbers, and you can easily figure out with. Uh, uh, Annuity payments by changing the age when you claim. It's not quite the same because it's still interest rate risk. I get it. But it'll give you a ballpark figure. The only caveat I want to throw out now, listener, even though I said I'm leaning towards taking the pension, I have not lump sum. I have not looked and seen the future benefit payments and they might rise far greater than any annuity. And my answer would change in a heartbeat or find out if the pension has a guaranteed growth rate on that lump sum. If you wait till next year, you're going to get this much. The next year, you're going to get that much. Wait till the year after, you're going to get that much. These are things you need to look at. When you counsel with an advisor, this is where I'm going with this. You got to be careful if you are paying that advisor as a percentage of assets because he or she is going to have an incentive to convince you to take the pension as a lump sum, not as an income stream. I'm only leaning towards the pension as a lump sum if the pension is frozen when you leave and it's not going to grow anymore. Then taking the pension as a lump sum and putting it in something very safe, not putting it under some advisor's management for one, one and a quarter, one and a half, whatever the hell it is, percent of the assets where they're going to try to grow it and they could easily lose some of it as opposed to growing it over the next few years. I'm dead against that. 
So be careful on how you are going to pay this advisor. You should try to find an advisor who is going to give you advice, not based on having to manage your assets, because that's a huge conflict of interest. If they convince you to take 300000 and they're charging you 1%, they're going to get three grand more a year from you. Gee, I wonder where they're going to lean. Find an advisor as you work on these variables who's just going to charge you a fee, whether it's an hourly fee, a fixed fee, a flat fee, I don't know. But I would favor one who's going to charge you a fee to figure all this out as opposed to a percentage of your assets. Anything else you want to add? No. I think think. that covers her her main two questions. And I'm going to make sure we answer this. Should I take the pension and wait on my Social Security? I'll take the Social Security and wait on my pension. I think we covered that uh, quite well. Maybe not. You can answer. (laughs) And then second question, uh, if I get the pension, should I take it in the form of an annuity or should I roll it into an IRA? I think we covered that. Maybe not directly, but if you listen to our answers, you can divine where we feel on both of those. Uh, And then her final question, Chris, and I'm going to let you sum this up because you speak more eloquently than me, plus my coffee's here. Um, She asks, are we way too short to achieve our goal of retirement because I am now being forcefully retired early? Um, Just looking at it with the data we have, which is not the whole situation by any means. I think it's tight because I don't know that there's a lot left for some of the protections that they might want to have in the form of the what we, you know, reserve buffer, the just in case fund, uh, protection against future inflation on the minimum dignity floor, there'll probably have to be a set aside for for that even if they have nice social security benefits that are inflation adjusted, the minimum dignity floor tends to inflate faster. So even if it uh uh, buys them quite a few years of coverage. There is a day in the future where likely they will have a uh, shortage and they need to be prepared for that. What's happening to her mother may happen to one or both of them. So having a plan for LTC uh, and other aging expenses that might come up. They don't have a very big pie on the sh- on, on the counter to to chop up into these designated pie pieces that we like to talk about that are to address these things. And so that makes me nervous. Is it a, a completely unviable plan? No, I think with some careful planning and some willingness to be flexible and and maybe think outside the box a little bit and at times maybe sacrifice a little here or there to make something you prioritize happen, I think they could put together a, a plan uh, that works. But certainly working longer, either or both of them, um, and, uh, you know, being careful early on is going to be important given the circumstances. And, and this is the, the hand that they've been dealt and uh, they need to work with it completely. But I'm not looking at this as, oh my gosh, there's no way this is going to work. I don't feel that that is the case, but I do think that it is, um, it's tight, which are the types of cases that need the most planning. If it's obviously not going to work, all the planning in the world isn't going to help you. If you have more money than you could ever spend, planning then is just, it's, it's not about success or failure. It's just about, you know, tweaking things here or there, maybe paying a little less in taxes, that kind of stuff, optimizing your situation. But it's when it's tight, when planning becomes the most valuable because it can keep you from 
making making mistakes and choices and trying you know helping you find the optimal approach to things like the pension claiming decision and that sort of thing planning in a case like this is most important of of all in in my personal opinion so i i really hope she finds somebody who can help her out and who will look into these details that we're kind of guessing at and we're supposing this and supposing that um someone needs to look at some of these details and consider all these different options and maybe more that you know there's probably more things that would come to mind if we knew all the nitty-gritty details about her situation which is obviously not going to happen in a format like this but um right yeah all right and then finally just because i don't want her saying hey you never mentioned to the listeners what i said she did write one sentence i don't think i even told you about this chris she said we have a great chance of getting an inheritance soon that we will use to pay the debt so i'm assuming she means the three hundred thousand or three fifty i forget what it is of debt on her house and I didn't mention this, and we, we have a hard time when it comes to inheritances because a lot of times they don't materialize to the level that somebody thought. But yes, that would be a game, not, I won't say a game change, but a huge benefit if you could wipe that $350,000 of debt away on your house through an inheritance. You don't tell us if there's going to be a million left over after that, or is it just about going to cover the debt on your house? But obviously, listener, any additional dollars you can bring in, whether it's from delaying Social Security, your husband working longer, you going back to the workforce if your mom passes away, anything or an inheritance is going to make your situation better. What jumped into my head when I read that is, is the inheritance coming from her mom? Because she says a great chance of getting it soon. An inheritance comes when someone passes. Now, either someone passed a long time ago and there's an inheritance caught up in the legal system and they think that that's going to be settled soon and they're going to get an inheritance. That's always a possibility. Or someone that knows and loves them is going to pass away in the not-too-distant future, and it's likely that they will have assets. If it is your mom, and again, I'm not assuming, but if it was, that's telling me your mom has some assets, and it's lending credence again into what I want you to look at. You might not need to make a decision and take the pension yet or turn on your Social Security yet. And if you could delay the pension at work and get a great future benefit or move it and put it in a guaranteed account, in, in this case, I'm saying a MIGA, but it could be a bank CD even, I don't care. Put it somewhere where you're not going to take risk, but you can walk away with a 5, 5.5, guaranteed return for the next three years or so. That, I think is a a reasonable strategy to consider. But if the inheritance is coming from your mom, that's telling me your mom has some assets that can be used to help fund the support you're going to be giving her. I'm not saying it's not drawing a salary from your mom's assets, but she can help offset some of the housing costs, some of the food costs, even some of your time costs. Because you are... Leaving work, I don't think you're going to take a hundred grand a year from your mom, but cover some of your needs. And that means you can probably delay having to either turn on the pension as a lifetime stream of income or turn on the Social Security. 
That's where I'm leaning towards it. And you do have to do a separate calculation to see if you should if you don't turn the pension on yet if I am right and you don't need to turn anything on yet. Next thing your advisor has to help you, should you leave the pension there for a future benefit or move it to an IRA where you might take it and put it in a MIGA or a bank CD or something and get a guaranteed safe growth rate on that to later turn on into an even greater income stream. Okay, that's all I want to say. Okay. Well, sounds good. Thanks for bringing that uh, to the show. And uh, I wish this person the the best of luck uh, in navigating all of this and caring for her mother. Hopefully everything works out well well there. And uh, And this is just probably one of many options. Mm -hmm. Don't, Mm -hmm. Don't act on everything we said. Find an advisor who can walk you through. We're just giving you general advice. Can't stress that enough. For sure. Okay. Well, we thank everybody for listening. And if you've got your own ideas for a future show, certainly reach out, let us know. Um, Send an email directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. You can also use that same email address to send in questions for our Q&A shows, which uh, air later in the week. But uh, we do appreciate everybody listening and sending in these great ideas for shows. And uh, we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 